0: morning, everyone. If you will please stand for the reading of God's Word. And while you are standing, turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. We'll be reading in chapter 7. Feel free to use the pew Bible in front of you, and you can find this morning's text on page 659. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 1, reading through verse 9. Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due to her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. And come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. For I wish that all men were even as I myself, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Let's pray. Father, we humbly come this morning, Lord, praising you that you are eternal. An everlasting God. Father, I thank you for this text this morning. Lord, I pray that you just be with Pastor Bruce. May you search our hearts. May we cast our cares, our wonders, our concerns on you this morning, and that you just speak to us. Lord, I thank you most of all for your son going to the cross, dying and rising again. We give you glory and honor. In your name I pray. Amen.
1: All right, as we talk about sex from God's perspective in the continuation of our series, Redeemed, I want to begin with this statement. And the statement is this Satan will do all he can to entice people who are not married into having sex, and he will do all he can to prevent people who are married from having sex. If you're single here this morning, Satan will try to get you in the sack because he knows something. He knows that sexual sin will sack your faith and eventually even harm your life. And if you're married here this morning, Satan knows because he will try to keep you on the opposite sides of the bed as a married couple because he knows your love for one another, your commitment for each other will be fed by a mutually satisfying sex life. Paul knows something here. He's sharing it with us as he shared it with this church In the city of Corinth. And he knows that this whole area of sex and sexuality is a major battleground. And it's one of the favorite targets that Satan uses to wreak havoc in our lives, whether you're single or married. Paul writes about sex to the Christians living in Corinth because they were living in a sex-crazed culture that was given over to the worship of sex, much like ours today. As a result, sexual brokenness surrounds us in many ways. In one way or another, it affects us all. And this sexual brokenness that we experience reveals our, our deep need for redemption. And that's what we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ, is redemption. I love that. Paul counters two extreme views of sex here. He encounters or counters one view at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and he begins to counter another view at the beginning here of chapter 7. Notice these two extreme views, one view is what we looked at last Sunday It's the hedonistic view and that is the view that says indulge in sex with anyone you want this was the prevalent view of the Corinthian culture it's also the prevalent view of our culture indulge in sex with anyone you want anytime you want some of the Christians in Corinth were saying And Paul quotes their argument, their reason. We looked at this last Sunday. All things are lawful for me. In other words, they were saying, listen, I have the right to do anything I want with my body, including the indulgence of sex, to have as much as I want with whoever I want, and who are you to tell me otherwise? That was their argument, their reason. And Paul counters that. They were misusing In fact, a a theological truth as Christians, as Christ followers, of their freedom in Christ to justify their sexual immorality. After all, they argued, and this was one of the arguments we looked at last Sunday, foods for the stomach, stomachs for the food. In other words, they were simply saying, by their reasoning and by their logic, Listen, sex is nothing more than a biological appetite to be satisfied, just like eating is when you're hungry. So why shouldn't I indulge myself? And Paul counters all that. He counters these two cultural arguments, and we looked at them last Sunday. The other argument is the abstinence view. Before we get to that, though, Paul tells us something, he he crystallizes uh, the, 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 the argument against this hedonistic view. He basically says to us, do you not know that your body is not for sexual immorality, but rather your body is for the Lord, it's for God's glory. And so Paul then commands us, and he gives us a very clear command from God himself to all of us to flee sexual immorality and to glorify God with the bodies that we have. Not because God is some kind of killjoy, but because God opposes those things which he knows that will kill our joy as human beings and especially as Christ followers. So Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price? Therefore, glorify God with this body that I have given to you. Your body matters. God is for your body. Your body is important, God says, so much so that I will raise it from the grave just as I did Jesus' own body. Yes, it will be resurrected and it will be restored and we're thankful for that. But your body matters. It's your own one and only body. Use it for the glory of God, not for your own self-pleasure. But there was another extreme view that seemed to overreact To this hedonistic view, and that is the abstinence view. And that view basically says, avoid sex with anyone, including your spouse. We see this view when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1, Now concerning the things which you wrote to me. And then he quotes their view. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Or some of your translations may even say something like this. Or to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, that view is true if you're not married. It is good not to touch a woman. It is good not to have sex before marriage. Paul even goes on and he says, listen, I wish all of you would remain abstinence and celibate. I wish all of you would remain single as I am. But this view from these Corinthian Christians was going way beyond abstinence before marriage to abstinence even in marriage. And so beginning here in chapter 7, Paul begins to respond to a series of questions that were written to him in a letter from the church leadership in Corinth. Questions about sex, marriage, divorce, and singleness. Now please understand here, let me make this qualification, Paul does not answer every question that there is on these issues. He does not address every issue or problem related to sex, marriage, divorce, and singleness here in 1 Corinthians 7. In these first five verses, Paul is answering a very specific issue or specific question related about sex in marriage. And so Paul begins here by quoting this extreme view of abstinence in marriage that he intends to confront and correct. He wants to correct our thinking about it. In doing so, he wants to give us God's perspective about it. This phrase, to touch a woman, was a common euphemism for sexual relations. And so this view that it is good for a man not to touch a woman has nothing to do with a hug or a handshake. It has everything to do with what some of the Corinthians were doing while they were married, or more accurately, what they were not doing while they were married. If you might imagine, some of them actually thought that it was good for married couples to avoid sex with one another. Now, the most obvious question to that is why? Why would they think that? Most likely, they were deceived into thinking that the highest plane of spirituality is complete, abstinence of sex because they valued the spirit the soul over the body in other words they devalued the body but we've already seen how God lifts up the body and he puts it on the same level as our spirit and our soul in other words While this view seems rather odd to us, even weird to us, in Paul's day, celibacy was elevated to a place of spirituality over everything else, where people actually were saying and thinking to themselves, man, if you're celibate, you're more spiritual than anybody else. Even in marriage. But Paul is going to show us something here. And he shows us that sexual abstinence in marriage is a really bad idea. In fact, it undermines one of God's greatest gifts to married couples. So what is God's view on sex? We'll notice it here in our notes. So we are all on the same page and so that we have a clear understanding. Here's God's splendid view of sex sex is god's gift to married couples god's gift to married couples and then we need to qualify that in our culture in a monogamous heterosexual marriage and it's his gift to those kind of married couples to enjoy on a regular basis therefore paul tells us satisfy your spouse and even protect your spouse Through this gift of sex. Now Paul is doing two things here for us. And these two things, listen, we want to champion them as a church. As your pastor I want to champion and can I say as parents, you want to champion these two things to your children and to your teenagers. We ought to be championing these truths to one another here. And what Paul is championing here, what he's exhorting, what he's reminding us, is that he sinful sex outside of marriage is a no-no. It is not to be. And so he's condemning sinful sex outside of marriage. And at the same time, he is lifting up and he is celebrating godly sex within marriage. Listen, that is the perspective we need to have as Christ followers. That is the perspective we ought to champion to our children and our teens. That God is not a killjoy. But he is opposed to what kills joy in our marriages and even in our lives before marriage. And he knows better than anybody else because he's our creator and our redeemer what kills joy in your life. God is not anti-sex. In fact, God's will is for husbands and wives to enjoy his splendid gift of sex on a regular basis. Therefore, Paul compels those of us here this morning who are married to satisfy your spouse and to protect your spouse with God's splendid gift of sex. And he gives us two reasons why. Notice the first reason why. Number one, because sex in marriage is a defense against sexual sin or sexual immorality. Sex in marriage is actually a defense, or if you want to put the word, safeguard, against sexual sin. We see this in verse 2 when Paul says, nevertheless. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, because of sexual sin, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Now when Paul says, nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, man, he is acknowledging something here. He is not putting his head under the rug. He's not sweeping something under the rug. He is acknowledging a reality in our lives. And that is the very real temptation of sexual immorality. And because of this temptation, Paul disagrees that married couples should abstain from sexual pleasure. This is confirmed when he says, Let each man have his wife, and let each woman have her own husband, which is another euphemism for sexual relations. In other words, Rather than abstaining from sex, Paul's expectation is that husbands and wives should continue to engage in sexual relations in their marriage. Why? Because sex in marriage is a defense against sin. It's a safeguard against sexual sin. Think of it this way, and you'll notice it in your notes coming up on the screen. Sex and marriage is a dam against the flood of sexual immorality because it offers God's way to satisfy sexual desire, which, by the way, is God-given. Your sexual desire is not evil. It's God-given. We should not think of our sexual desire as something bad and evil and demonic and satanic or otherwise. It's God-given. But he gives us the parameters in which to satisfy that sexual desire. And it's in the parameters of marriage. Now, this is not too difficult to understand. The best way to deal with sexual temptation is to fight fire with fire. And if you're having sex with your spouse on a regular basis, then your sexual desires will be satisfied, and the temptation of sexual immorality is weakened. A husband is far less tempted to hook up with an old girlfriend if he's frequently enjoying sex with his wife. A wife who has an affectionate husband who is attentive to her sexual needs isn't going to find herself as tempted to have an affair with a coworker who is complimenting her every week. Now Paul, listen to me, Paul isn't saying that marriage is a fix for one's lust. Nor is he saying that sex in marriage is the silver bullet against temptation. But it does play a crucial part in keeping the marriage bed pure. Let me also say that Paul is not saying that a lack of sex in one's marriage is justification for sin. But it is clear from this text that sex and marriage is intended as a dam against the flood of sexual immorality. This means, husbands and wives, do you realize you can protect each other by having sexual relations so that the temptation of sexual sin is significantly decreased, significantly weakened? Paul's point here is so clear. Marriage is a legitimate protection against sexual immorality. No, it's not foolproof. It's not a guarantee. But it's a legitimate safeguard. Because, listen to me, it offers God's way. In fact, God's glorifying way to satisfy the sexual desires that he has given to us. Paul is not saying... That this is the only reason to get married, by the way. We know that the Bible puts forth a number of reasons for people to get married. Such as proclamation of the gospel, procreation of family, partnership with your spouse. But here specifically in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is stating that marriage, listen to me, is God's provision to help us deal with strong sexual desires in a godly way. Paul tells us even, you drop down to verses 8 and 9, and he says, but I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. The implication is that this time Paul's writing, he's single. But then he qualifies it quickly and he says, listen, but if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. So if you're here this morning and you're burning with passion, then understand something. God's provision is to pursue marriage. Don't be lazy. Don't be sinful. And just pursue sex outside of marriage. That's what our culture does. They pursue friends with benefits. They pursue cohabitation. They pursue hookups so that they can gratify their sexual desires. And Paul is saying no, that is not God's provision. Don't be lazy. Don't be sinful and just pursue sex outside of marriage. Instead, he is adamantly saying to us and exhorting to us, as Christ's followers, listen, be a godly person and pursue marriage. Pursue a godly person and enjoy the gift of sex inside of marriage. So the first reason married couples are to enjoy God's splendid gift of sex is because sex inside the bounds of marriage is a defense against sexual sin. The second reason is sex in marriage is a debt you owe your spouse. It's a debt that you owe your spouse. Paul continues talking about sex and marriage in verses 3 through 4. Notice what he says. He says, let the husband render to his wife the affection do her and likewise also the wife to her husband the wife does not have authority over her own body but the husband does and likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body but the wife does so what does this mean oh it means what every man hopes it means for most guys these are two of the glorious greatest verses in all the bible And we read these verses and we say, Lord, man, I am your eager servant. I am ready to do your will. Thank you for these two verses, Lord. I know that's my sentiments. But before we get too carried away, we need to see two things about sex and marriage from, listen to me, God's perspective, not our culture's perspective. Listen, if we fail or if we neglect to see God's perspective of what he is saying here, we will distort and we will twist what God says badly. We will distort it even abusively. But when we see sex and marriage from God's perspective, we will see it actually quite revolutionary, what God is saying to us here. Notice, first of all, God's view of sex and marriage as a debt, it is radical. This is radical. What Paul says in verse 3 is radical. Look, look at it with me one more time. He says, Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. Now, the reason this is so radical, and especially in Paul's day, is that in the Greek and Roman culture in which Paul wrote this, women were seen as inferior to men. In fact, women were often dominated by men, even abused by men. But what Paul does here is radical because he, is, he, he takes this view and he is elevating women As equal to men. And he's insisting on equal rights for wives and husbands, especially in this area of sex. This equality in the area of sex between a husband and wife, it comes right out of the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, where we discover that both men and women are made in what? The image of God. God makes Adam, and then he makes Eve, and he gives them distinct and differing roles, but equal in personhood, equal in value. There they are in the Garden of Eden. They are naked and not ashamed, as the TV show says, and they are not afraid. God says to them, be fruitful and multiply. In other words, he has given them his blessing, his glorious blessing to go and enjoy this splendid gift of sex that I'm giving to you. It is my heavenly wedding gift to you. Sex is not bad. Sex is not dirty. Sex is good and glorifying to God when it is enjoyed within the context of marriage. Yes, sin tragically distorts God's gift of sex. And we're all familiar with stories of even sex being distorted and twisted in a marriage relationship and how abuse is even in there. Paul doesn't necessarily deal with that issue specifically. So we know that how sin distorts sex before marriage, it distorts sex even within a marriage. But grace radically redeems sex as a means. For the husband to meet the sexual needs of his wife, and the wife to meet the sexual needs of her husband. And when you put your spouse's needs first before your own, by God's grace your sexual needs will be met as well. So the first view from God's perspective here is radical. But the second view of sex and marriage as a debt, it is mutual. Paul writes in verse 4, He says, the wife does not have authority over her home body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now, this is rather interesting. Because if you were here last Sunday, then this should ring a bell. Something should be going off in your mind here when it comes to our body. Because this is the second time now that Paul tells us that we don't own our bodies or have authority over our own bodies and that is so countercultural. In 1 Corinthians 6:19 and 20, Paul says that God owns my body. I've been bought at a price. Glorify God with my body because he owns it, I don't. And now here in verse 4, Paul says that my spouse has authority over my body which means my body is not mine to do with it whatever I please do you realize that on your wedding day God gives the authority of your body over to your spouse as a heavenly wedding present notice again though Paul was very careful To give both husband and wife equal authority or rights when it comes to each other's bodies. Why? Because sex is meant to be mutual, not one-sided. It's a total dedication to each other. And I love the way pastor and author Tim Keller writes. He says, Indeed, sex is perhaps the most powerful God-created way to help you give your entire self to another human being. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. You must not use sex to say anything less. In other words, sex is meant to create permanence through mutual self-giving. And in sex, do you realize we are meant to see a picture of God's love where he gives himself to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Man, this kind of mutual love enriches a marriage relationship. Now, before we move on, we probably need to stop here and emphasize some practical implications when it comes to these verses. Husbands, let me speak to you first. Do not use these verses to bully your wife to have sex with you whenever and however you want. It's about You submitting your body to meet your wife's needs, not you demanding she does whatever you want. That's not what these verses are about. You cannot, do not read what Paul says in these verses in isolation of what Paul says in other places in the Bible, specifically one example in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, where Paul tells us as husbands... Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husband, this verse is a reminder that if your wife describes your performance in the bedroom as nothing more than wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, with no concern for your wife's needs physically, emotionally, and spiritually, then you have fallen drastically short of what God expects of you as a husband. Wives, there's some room here for some application for you as well. Your body is not your own. So don't use your body as a bargaining tool just to get your husband to do whatever you want around the house. Sex should never be used as a bribe or a reward for good behavior on the part of your husband. It should never be used as something to be withheld or as a threat or punishment. That's only going to frustrate your husband and make it easier for him to give in to sexual temptations. It doesn't justify his sexual sin, but it makes it easier for it. Think of it this way, wives. One of your ministries from God himself that he gives to you on your wedding day is to protect the purity of your husband with sexual intimacy. You might call it a ministry under the bed covers or a ministry in the bedroom because that's what it is for both husband and wife. The bottom line is that these verses are not about husbands and wives demanding their rights, but about surrendering them because sex in marriage Paul says, is a debt you owe your spouse. Paul says in verse 3, Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. And this word, due, that Paul uses here is a financial term that means a debt that is owed. And now Paul is taking this financial term and he's applying it to what husbands and wives owe one another in the bedroom in terms of sexual intimacy. Married couples, when you said, I do on your wedding day, you delightfully incurred a debt of sexual intimacy that's owed to your spouse till death do you part. Now let's be honest. Most debts... Are not fun to pay. Right? Who enjoys paying a car payment? Who enjoys paying the mortgage or rent? Credit card debt. Debts are not fun. But this debt. This debt is different. This debt is good. This debt is pleasurable. It's a debt that never goes away. It's a debt that we should always want to pay as the norm. And we understand that there are extenuating circumstances that Paul doesn't deal with when it comes to medical issues, health issues, even age issues. But overall, the norm here, Paul's exhortation to husbands and wives is this pay your debt. That's the exhortation. Pay your debt of sexual intimacy and do so gladly, spiritually, frequently, and passionately. Pay your debt gladly. The whole tone of this passage suggests that sexual intimacy in marriage is something that we ought to pursue with our spouses with joy. After all, sex is God's splendid gift to married couples to enjoy, not to avoid. I mean, who gets a wedding gift and just leaves it in the corner? Man, when my wife and I got married, we had all these wedding gifts. We got back from our honeymoon. We couldn't wait to open up our wedding gifts. You have a birthday. You have a celebration of any kind. You get a gift, you don't tuck it in the closet and never look at it and not unopen it. No. Enjoy. Listen, it's okay. It's good. Pay your debt spiritually. Paul alluded in chapter 6 that through sex, we become what with one another? One flesh. Now, most of us here, we typically understand that physically speaking. But do you realize there is a spiritual dimension to that as well? And then you add in the fact that as Christ followers, our bodies are members of whom? Christ. And then here in chapter 7, Paul talks about sex and marriage as a defense against sexual sin. So we could think of it this way. Carry out your sexual intimacy in marriage with an awareness that this is what happens in the bedroom is actually spiritual warfare. Against sexual immorality that is so rampant in our culture. Pay your debt frequently. Paul uses a present tense verb here back in verse 3 when he says, Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her. And the idea here is to keep on paying your debt on an ongoing basis. You don't pay it once or twice and then put it in the closet. And then pay your debt passionately. In fact, this may be one of the most misunderstood aspects in marriage. And that's the idea that God intends sex to be for pleasure and to be satisfying and to be something we enjoy with our spouses for his glory. What the father told his son in Proverbs 15, 18 through 19 is still true. He says to his son, May Your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. And so what we see here in the Word of God, based on God's authority through the Apostle Paul here, is that regular sexual intimacy is the normal pattern of a healthy, loving marriage. But Paul does make one exception. And that exception is this. Notice it in your notes. Married couples may refrain from sex for an agreed upon limited period of time to devote themselves to a spiritual focus through prayer. Now, notice the condition, though, for this exception. Look what he writes in verses 5 through 6. He says, Do not deprive one another. And it's not talking about, he's talking specifically about sexual intimacy. Do not deprive one another except, so here's the exception, with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again, which is another euphemism for sexual relations, so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. Now. I just happen to think that you can have a good sex life and a good prayer life at the same time. But there are times when it's necessary for married couples to abstain from sex in order to devote themselves to a spiritual focus. It's kind of like fasting, but not with food. And so a husband and wife may come together and they may say to each other, you know, honey, let's really focus on prayer for a few days here. Because I don't know about you, but we are going through a crisis or we're dealing with a really big issue in our marriage and we, just, we have a desperate need to pursue God and to seek God and to seek Him through prayer. And so we're going to focus and we're going to devote ourselves to this, It's no different than fasting with food that Jesus talks about in the Gospels, except now it's a fast of sex between a marriage spouse and spouses. And Paul says there are situations that arise because of the culture and the world in which we live when married couples may go on a sex fast, but he gives that under three conditions. He says, number one, the sex fast must be by agreement of both spouses. With no manipulation on behalf of either one. In other words, neither spouse has the right to unilaterally shift in a hyper spiritual drive and deny their spouse sexual intimacy. And then he says the sex fast is only for a short period of time, it's not permanent and it's not indefinite. And then resume sexual intimacy again. And then, number three, the third condition, he says the sex fast is spiritually driven. In other words, the purpose is for each spouse, whether separately, but the the connotation that I get here is together, they are devoting themselves in a concentrated way to seeking the Lord in prayer. Now, Paul is also saying that this exception of going on a sex fast, it's not a concession, it's not a command. In other words, I'm not commanding married couples to do this. But it's certainly acceptable, and it's even allowable when needed in a marriage. And at the same time, we should also understand that this is an exception, and it's not the norm. Because Paul quickly brings us back to the importance that sexual intimacy is to be the normal pattern in a marriage. And he tells us why at the end of verse 5 when he says, And come together again so that. And what's the reason why? So that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And so we see the exception here to the debt that we already saw. And now we see the danger that's also involved. Notice it in your notes. If you deprive each other of sex, you open yourself up to Satan's attacks to abuse your God-given sexual desire through sexual sin. Again, this is why Paul says at the beginning of verse 5, do not deprive one another. Now, that word deprive, it's an interesting word. It's also translated rob. And so you immediately see the implication that Paul's doing here. It means to cheat somebody out of what is properly theirs. In other words, if you withhold your body back from your spouse, when your spouse is seeking sex, Paul is saying it's the equivalent of robbery. Here's the spiritual reality that Paul's getting at. The longer sex is deprived in a marriage, the greater the risk of temptation. That's the spiritual principle. Why? Because Paul knows something here, and he is sharing it with us. Paul knows that Satan is not a pushover. He is real, and he is powerful. And Paul understands that Satan is looking for any and every opportunity to shatter Christian marriages through sexual sin. And so don't pretend. Do not dare. You pretend to be so spiritual that you can neglect sex with your spouse and then think, oh, it won't matter. Satan's not going to attack me, and he's certainly not going to attack my spouse, and our marriage is safe. And don't use your piety as a way to cover up the deeper underlying problems in your marriage that are leading you to avoid sexual intimacy with your spouse altogether. Because if that's the case, then you need to do some counseling, some soul searching. You and your spouse have other issues you need to deal with. For Paul, instead of Sex and marriage being some sort of distraction from godliness. He is actually teaching us that sex and marriage is a way to promote our godliness, and it is actually glorifying to God. As married couples, we have a responsibility to guard our marriages from Satan. He is seeking to devour the marriage bed. Therefore, don't let him into your bedroom. Keith Krell, who is a pastor, describes it this way. And I quote, he says, imagine this common scenario. A married couple in bed with their backs turned to each other and plenty of space in between. Guess who can slither right into the marriage bed? Satan. A simple way to avoid this is being close before you drift off to sleep. Roll over and cuddle with your spouse every night. Tell your spouse, I love you. Kiss him or her goodnight. And if these intimate moments lead to making love, wonderful. But regardless, you've shared some intimate moments and are taking steps to protect the marriage bed. Oh, how we need to recover God's vision that delights in his splendid gift of sex and marriage. Listen, folks, when we begin to believe this, when we begin to embrace it and live it out, this picture of the gospel, oh, how countercultural we will be, and oh, what a testimony we will show of his redeeming grace when it comes to God's splendid gift of sex. Philip Yancey writes in an article, Holy Sex, How It Ravishes Our Souls, and he says, and I quote, Marriage strips away the illusions about sex pounded into us daily by the entertainment industry. Few of us live with over-sex supermodels. We live instead with ordinary people, men and women who get bad breath, body odors, and unruly hair, who have bad moods and embarrass us in public who pay more attention to our children's needs than our own. We live with people who require compassion, tolerance, understanding, and an endless supply of forgiveness. And so do our spouses. Such is the ironical power of sex. It lures us into a relationship that offers to teach us what we need far more, sacrificial love for one another. No wonder Paul says then in verse 7, I wish that all of you were as I am. But, but, each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift and another that. So if you're married here this morning, don't ever let yourself settle into a routine where your marriage relationship is just a relationship to be tolerated or an obligation to be carried out. Listen, Don't do that. Instead, see, get a vision of your marriage. Get God's vision of your marriage and see your marriage as a gift from God and know that in that gift, He provides the grace and the power and the strength to carry out your marriage in a way that glorifies Him. And if you are single here this morning or even single again through divorce or through death of a spouse, whether it's for a season or whether it's for a long term, see your singleness as a gift from God and know that He gives you His grace to refrain from sexual activity and instead live a life that is characterized by sexual purity. I leave you with two challenges here this morning. The first of which is to singles and that is to explore God's grace in your life through prayer and counsel. Take this issue of marriage and singleness and explore it in prayer. Asking God, God, what have you done in my life? What are you doing in my life? And of which of these gifts are you given to me? And invite other godly people into your life who know you and to seek their counsel. Don't go through life without exploring this. Just assuming you're supposed to do what the culture says. Assuming that you're just supposed to be married or single, explore it with God and godly people. And then for those who are single and married, in other words, to everyone here, express thanksgiving to God for the gift that he's given to you. Whether it's singleness or marriage, express gratitude to God for his gift and for his grace to live it out. We are without excuse As Christ followers, we have the spirit of God within us. We have the grace of God. We have every resource at our disposal to live a life that is worthy of him, to live a life that brings glory and honor to him, whether we are single or whether we are married. Thankfulness, do you realize, is another powerful defense against Satan's attacks. And one reason why so many marriages are just blowing up is because the spouses are unthankful for one another. Unthankful for their marriage, no matter how bad or how good it is or where you are in between. And while we're in that situation, we are wishing for something different. We're wishing our spouse would be this or that and God would change them. Instead of just saying, God, I am grateful and thankful for what you have given to me. An ungrateful heart gives a platform for Satan to come in and destroy you in your marriage. Bend the knee nightly and give thanks to God for what he has given to you and the grace to live it out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that we need your grace so much more than we even understand and realize to walk in obedience amidst the countless temptations and distortions in the world when it comes to sex. And so we ask, would you help us? Would you help us to live out sexual purity with your grace, whether single or married? Help married couples to see and enjoy the beauty of sex in their relationship. Help them to see it even as a spiritual means to protect them from sexual sin. And so, God, we also come with repentant hearts and we confess our sins before you and ask that you would forgive us of our sins in this area of sex and sexuality and that you would cleanse our hearts. For we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Now we're not gonna have a time of invitation or response. But I simply wanna say to you in closing that sex is good and glorifying to God within the bounds of marriage. I don't know where you're at in your marriage or whether, where you're at in your singleness, in this whole area, but let me encourage you to pursue sexual purity, whether you're single or married. Pursue help. Do whatever. This is a wonderful, glorious thing that God has given to us. Amen? And so I leave you with one more verse. James 1.21. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. That's true for singles and for marrieds. Go and be doers of the word of God here this morning.